Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese top diplomat Wang Yi concludes his trip to Singapore, Malaysia, and Cambodia. What does the future hold? In addition, we take a look at China's efforts to optimize the foreign investment environment and discuss its strong opposition with the United States over a so-called stopover by a Taiwan independence agitator. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has reaffirmed China's commitment to supporting Cambodia's unique development path. Wang made the remarks when meeting with Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen in the capital of Cambodia. He said China will support Cambodia in pursuing a development path that suits its national conditions and in playing a greater role on the international and regional stages. Hun Sen, whose Cambodian People's Party just won a landslide victory in the general election, said the new Cambodian government will continue to strengthen strategic mutual trust with China and carry forward the traditional friendship. Cambodia was the last leg of Wang's Southeast Asia tour, which had taken him to Singapore and Malaysia. So to talk more about the trip, let's have Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rong. Thank you for having me. First of all, Wang Yi's Southeast Asia tour concluded in Cambodia, preceded by visits to Singapore and Malaysia. How do you evaluate the timing and overall outcomes of the trip? Yeah, I think the visit has uh, been well timed for the uh, three uh, respective countries. Uh, they all have some special uh, sort of e- event or special year to com- commemorate in terms of the bilateral relationship. For uh, Singapore, I think China and Singapore has just established a kind of a new uh, uh, kind of a relationship they call uh, all-round um, com- uh, all, all-round high quality and forward-looking uh, for- forward-looking look- relationship, which is uh, I think it's a very high uh, sort of uh, standard uh, upgraded from previous one. And for China and Malaysia, I think this year marks the 10th anniversary of the agreement to establish a a comprehensive strategic partnership for cooperation. I mean, and for Cambodia, uh, this year marks the 65th anniversary of the fund of the diplomatic relation. But I think the the most important thing is that uh, if one looks ahead, there are two. important regional, uh, I mean, uh, diplomacy. One is the regional diplomacy. Mm-hmm. The East Asia uh, leaders meeting or summit will coming was were taking place soon, early September. This is a gathering, uh, certainly for Chinese leaders and ASEAN leaders and including the three countries. And also looking ahead, I think China has announced that they were going to host their third international cooperation from, from the R Belt and Road Initiative. So this is really, I think, uh, uh, a kind of uh, uh, important uh, visit uh, on the eve of these important uh, diplomatic uh, in- engagement interactions, preparing the ground for the uh, for for uh, I mean for the for the activities for the events in the ahead. Dr. Rong. Um, uh, speaking yes. of the priorities and outcomes, how might the uh, these three visits collectively shape China's broader diplomatic value or diplomatic strategy in the region? I think it's also very much related to your question in terms of the values or the uh, I mean that China's diplomacy to to the region to its neighborhood is is con- uh, our concern. I think. Uh, First and foremost, it has strengthened the communications, strategic communications on bilateral and regional issues. Therefore, I strengthen, I think, strategic trust. And secondly, I, I think they also worked out plans to implement the agreements, all the, all the agreements that has been agreed in the future. So it's a kind of forward-looking. Last but not least, I think 
it also very much, I think, the focus on practical, pragmatical uh, uh, issues where uh, uh, China and uh, these uh, three countries and Asia in general view each other as opportunities. That's very much test, uh, uh, sort of uh, served as testimony, a demonstration for China's diplomacy for its neighbors, featuring amity, uh, sincerity, uh, uh, a mutual benefit and uh, uh, inclusiveness, and also I think treating China's neighbors as partners and as friends. So this is a very well, I think, uh, planned and certainly executed diplomacy and test uh, showing, demonstrate very much China's activeness and proactiveness uh, 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 in terms of the diplomacy towards its neighbors and the region in general. During the trip, Wang Yi emphasized the importance of preventing disruptive forces from sowing discord among regional neighbors. So in this context, how do you view the impact of external actors on the, for example, South China Sea issue and regional stability in general? Yeah, that's exactly, I think, the problem uh, facing the region and uh, in terms of China's relations with the three countries uh, and the ASEAN in general. I would say that, as we have seen, uh, that during the visits, uh, the exchanges, the uh, agreement, the consensus arriving from the visit shows that the China and the ASEAN uh, uh, in general are working very closely to promote peace, stability, and prosperity. In the meantime, I think uh, the China and the ASEAN uh, are all well aware there are some forces, uh, disruption forces, I'd say, does not want, do not want to see uh, this, uh, uh, I think, uh, the situation, particularly in terms of China's relationship with the region. And the South China they simply play up the South China Sea issue, and they play up, I think, the differences uh, or, uh, or disputes uh, of China with some ASEAN countries. Uh, in this case, I think we're talking about South China Sea. We're talking about, in particular, I think, the ongoing uh, disputes uh, or incidents related to the Renai uh, Reef, Renai Jiao. And I think China made it very clear, Foreign Minister Wang Yi made it clear, we have to be vigilant. We have to be well aware the danger, the risk that uh, the external forces, the United States in particular, wanted to play up these issues just simply uh, to pursue their geostrategic agenda at the expenses of the peace and stability and prosperity region. This is something I think we can work, to, should work together to prevent and I think to oppose. Dr. Ong, about the trip, about Wang Yi's trip to Singapore, uh, the transformation of China-Singapore relations into an all-round, high-quality, future-oriented partnership is notable. What specific factors have contributed to the deepening of their relationship, and how might it influence the broader regional dynamics? Yeah, I think China and the Singapore relations has been going on very well, despite the fact that this relationship does not uh, have a long history. I think we're talking about uh, the uh, formal relationship diplomatic uh, established in early 1990s. Having said that, the relationship so far has been developing so well and on a very solid base, broad in scope. And this is largely because I think, first and foremost, it was uh, nurtured or it was developed by the first gener the, the older generations of the leaders. And that is, serves a very solid foundation, political foundation for the bilateral relations. But I think the most more important thing is that the relationship has been developing, has been involving keeping by keeping pace with the time or progressing with the, with the progress of, of time by constantly upgrading, renewing uh, their relationship. That's why I think last year, uh, early this year, when the Prime Minister Li Xinlong visited China and the two sides agreed to upgrade the relationship uh, to an all-round high-quality future-oriented partnership. This is, of course, very important in terms of providing direction and for the future. But the, the, the equally important thing is, that, of course, I think 
the uh, the pragmatic uh, sort of cooperation arising from that, uh, as we have seen that are many big projects uh, uh, in at this moment, uh, in the past, but now at this moment, I think the two sides are very much focusing on uh, the uh, so-called the demonstration uh, uh, initiative on strategic connectivity. But the, the last but not least, I think the two sides also always have a very close and a profound strategic combination in terms of regional and even global issues. That also very much helps to strengthen and build up the uh, strategic trust, uh, which again helps uh, the uh, relationship uh, uh, develop in a steady, healthy way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Rong, briefly, how do you look at Wang's trip to Malaysia? They focused on expanding Chinese investments and bilateral cooperation. How significant is Malaysia's role within China's Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, Malaysia is also, again, uh, to relationship, China and Malaysia relationship also is being very good. And it not only has a long history, we're talking about a thousand years of history, historical background, uh, but more importantly, I think uh, on the question of uh, uh, develop, pursuing their uh, sort of a road of development in light of their own respective national conditions. In this regard, I think China also shares a lot of common ground uh, on that. But the most important thing in recent years, I've seen talking about the 10th anniversary of all rounds of a comprehensive strategic partnership, of an effort, of a vision, of building a community of a shared future. This here, I mean, so the Belt Road Initiative comes into play. Uh, China and Malaysia have been working very closely on two flagship projects. The one is called, they called East Coast uh, Rail Ring Project. That's a, literally, I think, the... Uh, uh, connectivity uh, uh, issues that would help uh, uh, to build uh, Malaysia, to fulfill Malaysia's uh, uh, infrastructure, connectivity in particular. And the other uh, project is called the uh, Industrial Park thing, uh, pro- uh, project. We called Two Country Twin Industrial Park. That pro- the project would, uh, a- has been aimed to help, I think, uh, Malaysia to achieve its industrialization and modernization. There are other areas equally important, of course, emerging economies, digital economies, green transit, uh, uh, energy, and so on and so forth. These, I mean, to put together, help China and the Malaysia relationship I mean, to develop in a sense that has been very solid, uh, very uh, uh, substantial. And they just take the one example. If we talk about the trade, the trade volume bilateral stood at 200 a billion U.S. dollars. That is almost, I think, one-fifth of the overall trade of China with uh, with ASEAN. So very significant, very close, and of course, I think uh, uh, plays a very important role of demonstration, China and, and, and uh, ASEAN, for common development. Thanks, Dr. Rong, for your insights on Wang Yi's recent Southeast Asia trip and the implications for regional dynamics. That's Dr. Rong Ying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. You're all listening to Road Today. Stay with us. China's State Council has issued new guidelines aimed at enhancing the foreign investment environment. The document puts forward 24 guidelines in six areas. They include measures to strengthen the enforcement of intellectual property rights, increase financial and tax incentives, and make better use of foreign capital. The guidelines also encourage different regions to roll out supporting measures tailored to local conditions. So to delve into this new guidelines. Joining us on the line is Dr. Zhang Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zhou. Okay, it's my pleasure. China's recent guidelines aim to optimize the foreign investment environment. How do these guidelines align with the country's broader economic and development goals? We know that China is uh, entering a new era. We should not only try to address the problem of getting bigger and bigger, but trying to become stronger and better quality. Mm -hmm. So in this regard, I think that many of the FDIs are coping with their partners also from China and 
from different kind of uh, countries trying to improve their abilities to adapt to the new goals. So in this regard, I would say that uh, it is trying to give us a more clear signal that both sides are trying to prove, uh, uh, improve the stabilities and the predictability of uh, the environment. And this is a very important one to try to enlarge the room and stable the cooperation between the different stakeholders. Mm-hmm. The State Council's guidelines proposed 24 specific measures across six different areas. Can you provide insights into the measures that are, in your opinion, innovative or groundbreaking in terms of their potential impact on foreign investment attraction and utilization? Actually, we know that from the, the perspective of the investors, maybe the, the stability is more important than more innovative ways of doing things. Actually, in my understanding, that China has tried to continue its promises as opening up its uh, market and trying to provide a very stable platform for the investment. But if you want me to identify several principles or measures, I would say that, you know, from the order of the 24 measures, we can find that the innovative way or kind of things to support the research and development for the FDIs are put in the first or the first position. So actually that we know China is uh, facing a lot of problems together with many other countries. So we try to improve the abilities for the foreign investors in in addressing these problems. So it's a really important one. And we're still trying to improve the abilities of the FDIs who can be involved in the decision-making process, like for some standards designing or some process that we can uh, we can uh, have a better monitoring about the de- uh, development of the sectors. So we are trying to provide them uh, more space and uh, abilities or flexibilities for the FDIs. Uh, Dr. Jomi, one of the aspects highlighted is to guarantee the national treatment of foreign invested enterprises. So how do you see this commitment influencing foreign companies' confidence in investing in China and fostering a level uh, playing field? I think that uh, maybe all these country, uh, all these investors are facing the challenges, especially when the trade become more diversified. We know that the diversified trade, I mean, from the destination to the methods of doing that, should depend on the abilities of the stakeholders. So for the FDIs, when they are able to compete with other enterprises in uh, equal ways and trying to get a better treatment by the financial institutions or they can support it more from the human resources, it will be better for them to address the problem. Actually, for those FDIs, when they are coming from different countries, they are really seeing the the problems with different angles. So maybe some of them are having different ideas in addressing this problem and that could be uh, I mean, could it be uh, successful or at least uh, effective in dealing many of these challenges? Mm-hmm. The guidelines encourage local regions to adopt supporting measures according to their unique conditions. Can you provide examples of how different regions might tailor these measures and what impact such localized approaches could have on overall foreign investment outcomes? Actually, we know that in recent years, we have uh, many platforms, including the free trade zones. Actually, we, we have different measurements in different areas, like for the, for the, for the province of Zhejiang, they are trying to, to carry out some practices on the crude oil or petrol-related supply chains. So they can try to improve the abilities for the foreign companies, like for BP or other companies to invest there, and not only on the manufacturing of those products, but also trying to improve the ability on the services or financial areas. Like for some uh, other province, like in Guangxi, they are able to have a better coordination uh, or cooperation with the ASEAN countries. So they are able to have a uh, cross-border cooperation and also the border trade. So in this regard, I think that the FDIs are welcomed by different regions because of their own identities and sectors. And it's very helpful for them to discover whether we can trying to use, uh, you know, the guidelines of the state culture and improve or input some of the ideas and elements of the local local society and the communities. We know physical and tax support is identified as a key area to promote foreign investment. So 
Could you delve into the specific ways in which the government plans to provide incentives and support to foreign investors through the tax policies? Yeah, we know that after we enter WTO, we have promised that we should treat all the members, I mean, the, the companies the same. So it's a, a principle of national treatment. So in this regard, I don't think that we will treat FDIs with a very special and different ways. But I have to say that from these principles, from these measures, we can find that there are many things to do with the innovative ways of uh, uh, improve the abilities of the FDIs' abilities in, in the supply chain and cooperation in China. Well, I, I in my understanding, that is not only for the FDIs, but it has a many interests because that FDIs are really encouraged in certain sectors and, and that is published in the catalog for encourage for encouraging the FDIs in China. So besides of that specific kind of policies, I, I mean that there are more collaboration between Chinese local companies and FDIs, which are very important because the FDIs, they are trying to address these problems by cooperation with China's supply chain and the complete sectors in China who are enable them to compete with other companies around the world. Thanks, Dr. Zhou, for sharing such insightful perspectives on China's latest guidelines to optimize the foreign investment environment. That's Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. More to come, China expresses strong opposition with the U.S. over a so-called stopover by a Taiwan independence agitator. This is World Today. We'll be back. Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. China has expressed a strong opposition and dissatisfaction with the United States over a so-called stopover in the U.S. by Lai Qingte, a politician with Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party. The foreign ministry calls Lai a pro-independence troublemaker and says his transit trip is another instance of collusion between Washington and Taipei, seriously violating the One China principle and undermining China's sovereignty and territory territorial integrity. The foreign ministry says China is closely monitoring the situation and will take a strong and resolute measure to defend its national sovereignty and territorial integrity. So for more on the news, joining us on the line is Dr. Liu Kuangyu, researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. Could you please help us understand China's position and why China is strongly opposing Lai's so-called stopover in the United States? Sure. Uh, first of all, China, uh, Taiwan is a part of China, which is an important political premise recognized and committed by the United States when it established diplomatic relations with China. Uh, the U.S. has no position, reason, or legitimacy to engage any form of so-called official exchanges with Taiwan. As such is the case with latching this uh, so-called stopover to the United States as so-called Taiwan's person. And second, in addition to being Taiwan's second in large, Lai Qingde is also the chairman of the, Demo- of the Democratic Progressive Party and its so-called presidential candidate, uh, which is and is also a very die-hard Taiwan independence activist. So he uh, went to the United States with four unusual identities, which is the first time uh, among the Taiwan politicals. In the current situation of China-U.S. relations in Taiwan Straits, this is by no means the so-called routine transit uh, by the U.S. side, uh, but, it's, uh, but a political provocation with ulterior motives. Uh, in fact, it will create a breakthrough for high-ranked Taiwan independent activists to enter Taiwan, uh, to enter the United States, and therefore China's position to uh, the U.S. linking up with Taiwan independence. Uh, let alone being the leader of Taiwan independence, who is high in position and intends to see the future leadership of Taiwan region, is an extreme uh, mistake, compounded by mistakes. So China has a full legitimacy and necessity to take on our measures. From, we can see from Pelosi to Tsai Ing-wen's uh, visit to the United States to meet with Kevin McCarthy, uh, the frequent collusion between separate forces on the island and external forces is a direct cause 
of the turbulent situation in Taiwan Strait current currently, and is also extremely unstable factor in the political relations between China and the U.S. And China hopes the U.S. can have a more profound understanding of this. Dr. Liu, could you please elaborate more on the underlying、uh, motivations for the United States to arrange such a stopover? Yes, the U.S. operation of alleging this so-called、uh, stopover to the U.S.、Uh, shows that it's、uh, focusing on the Taiwan election that is related to the next crucial、uh, decade between the China and U.S.、Uh, and the urgency of using Taiwan to control China and supporting independence to. Uh, create chaos in China exceeds the need for controlling Taiwan independence for now. So the U.S. has made a gesture to strictly restrict、uh, and closely monitor lighting this transit.、Uh, but however,、uh, it's also to advertise that it did not give any so-called、uh, preferential preferential、uh, preferential treatment to lighting the, including no escalation of official interactions and so on. In this way, it is trying to show that it will not draw any. It does not want to draw any criticism of interference in the election. But it also,、uh, they, uh, it might also want to reverse the rake and dig a pick for the Chinese mainland's countermeasures by criticizing by criticizing the mainland,、uh, so-called exploiting the problem and escalation、uh, and uh, escalating the situation. And third,、uh, third. Is that this? This is also the way the United States intervenes in the Taiwan elections, using the so-called interview to further display, lie, and test his、uh, obedience. The U.S. side listens to what he says, but more importantly, it needs to watch what he does.、Uh, it needs to see whether it will perform bombastically on international occasions like、uh, Li Tenghui or Chen Shui-bian as before.、Uh, whether it can control and utilize his his impulse. Of so-called Taiwan independence, in accordance with the needs of the U.S. to be a qualified Taiwan agent for the U.S.、Mm-hmm. Dr. Liu, you mentioned some examples of collusion between Washington and uh, some uh, Taipei's separatists, mainly from DPP. How would you characterize the evolving role of the United States in the Taiwan Strait affairs over the past few years? Yes, in the past few years, especially since the. Last two U.S. administrations, the U.S. has continued to deepen its pivotal Asia strategy to shift east forward and more compre- comprehensively and deeply、uh, intervene in the Taiwan Strait affairs,、um, becoming the largest foreign interference forces to challenge the peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait.、Uh, we can、uh, we have a few salient cha- changes that we can we can see. The first is from balance in the Taiwan Straits to using Taiwan to contain China. Uh, the U.S. no longer insists on a more balanced position between the two sides, but accelerated its inclusion of Taiwan into a more、uh, so-called strategic chain of containing China and, and assigned Taiwan、uh, with a special position and task. And second, from so-called strategic ambiguity to more clarity, the United States have been long debating about this.、Uh, the U.S. government tends to believe that the strategic strategic ambiguity is more conducive to containing. To maintaining the the best interests of the United States in Taiwan, but in recent years, both the bills proposed by Congress and words nations, the White House and State Department, has shown a trend of a gradual clarity on the U.S. policy towards Taiwan, which is a very dan- dangerous signal. And third,、uh, from uniting、uh, its alliances to protect Taiwan and to strengthening its alliances with Taiwan, and that's the third uh, third uh, part of it. The Chinese consulate general in New York also voiced a strong opposition, saying that the U.S. is using underhanded measures to hollow out the One China principle, using salami slicing tactics to constantly challenging China's red line and make breakthroughs. How do you look at the concept of salami slicing tactics that the consulate mentioned? How does this relate to? The U.S. approach towards the Taiwan question. Well, I see the main purpose of the United States in hauling now the One China policy is to gradually dissolve、uh, the legitimacy of China's sovereignty over Taiwan and the legitimacy of China's national reunification, and then to find an excuse for the U.S. intervention in the Taiwan Strait. But the U.S. does not have the legal basis or any or, or enough strength or resolve to directly. Subvert the One China policy and tear up 
the political uh, political agreement with China at once, so they can only take gradual approach to the issue. And that is to say, on the surface, it constantly uh, guarantees China by reiterating the one-China policy remains unchanged, so on. At the same time, it adjusts the specific contents of this policy through uh, specific policy practice, practices or legislative amendments. And finally, completes a so-called alienation of this policy uh, step by step. We can see that on one hand, the U.S. government has added the so-called six guarantees to the one-China policy, uh, wrongly linked this policy to, so- to the so-called uh, the peaceful settlement of Taiwan question, and added many prefixes and suffixes that, that did not exist. And the U.S. Congress also repeatedly passed bills trying to deny that Resolution 2758, the U- U.N. National uh, U.N. General Assembly has solved the Taiwan question and so on. And the uh, and even to require the U.S. to establish diplomatic relations with Taiwan, and that is how they slice uh, the salami. Mm-hmm. Uh, some critics argue that the U.S.-Taiwan strategy might be playing with fire, potentially mm-hmm. risking a military conflict. How do you assess the potential for a military conflict due to escalating tensions? Because many believe the United States is actively seeking a point. Mm-hmm. Right. of escalation into military conflict with China, uh, either in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Straits. Do you agree with such a view? Yes, according to current game between China and U.S. and, and the situation in Taiwan Strait and the international security situation and after or since the conflict in Ukraine, then the U.S. Has, uh, has actually adopted the idea of a so-called integrated deterrence and actual combat readiness towards China in the Taiwan Strait. And that is attracting allies, arming Taiwan, and making every effort to increase deterrence against China and and obstruct the reunification of China. But it is also true that if deterrence fails, the United States must bring a sense of war to ensure that U.S. and its allies, as well as Taiwan, have the capability to to prevail. And this is also an important aspect of the battlefield uh, setting by the United States in the Taiwan Strait in, in recent in the, in the past months. So at the same time, there are indeed radical forces in the, U- in the U.S. that hope to lure a war across the Taiwan Strait and defeat China in advance before China is so-called ready. So this is a very, very dangerous idea. Thank you very much, Dr. Liu, for your analysis on the motivations behind the U.S. involvement on China's Taiwan question and the potential implications of Lai Qingte's visit. That's Dr. Liu Kuangyu, researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. The recent wildfire catastrophe that engulfed Hawaii's islands has prompted a critical re-evaluation of disaster preparedness and response measures. The blaze became the deadliest wildfire in the United States in over 100 years. Around 100 people have died and transformed the historic town of Lahaina into ashes. Lahaina residents recall the horrifying experiences of their families' escape from the fire on the island of Maui. There was a fire. They were trying to contain it. We went down, come back an hour, the fire was still smoldering, but yet no one was there. We evacuated. We tried to go down the bypass where they were sending everyone, and then they shut that off. We heard the structures falling. When we turned around on the bypass, we had flames on both sides of us. It was so terrifying. We saw everything go from like I don't know, from one building pop, and then there was like 15, 20 houses that just went up so fast. Questions arise over the malfunctioning of the alert system during the disaster. It was really hard leaving, leaving our house and just seeing like the fire just like right down the road and just like coming and everyone's just trying to get out. There was nobody to turn on sirens. Nobody evacuated us. There was nobody, no alarm to say like it's coming. Like it was just like people were just like, "Are you guys leaving? We're leaving. Okay, let's go." That was it. I'm so blessed that me and my family are together, and we weren't like a lot of families that were stuck and had to swim. Like I couldn't imagine my son swimming and my grandma swimming in the water. 
Authorities emphasize the unprecedented challenges posed by the hurricane-forced winds and rapid fire spread. So, for more on the devastating fires in Hawaii, joining us on the line is Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and Executive Director of the Professional Association for China's Environment. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me again. First of all, how did the blaze started?、Um, it's really devastating to see the disasters and the losses, in particular human life. As you mentioned, it's really the deadliest wildfire disaster、uh, in more than 100 history in the United States today. Now the reason, and this moment, I think the investigation is still going on, and no one can literally clearly pin down、uh, the exact the cause, the starting point actually of this wildfire. But a lot of fingers at this point are pointing actually to the electric,、uh, the Hawaii Electric, the power company、uh, that supplies 95 percent of the electricity for Hawaii State. And、uh, so, as I said, investigation is still going on,、uh, but there are reasons actually why people point fingers to this power company. Is that when the gusty winds at the speed of more than fifty miles per hour? Now, of course, in the end, it's, it's reaching about eighty-one miles per hour. They should have probably cut off the power. Instead, it's just, you know trying to keep it on still, you know, stay online there.、Uh, that definitely hasn't really helped much in that process. Uh, but at this moment, as, as I said, let's just wait until、uh, the investigation are completed, and hopefully, somehow, they will be giving、uh, mm-hmm. not only local people but the rest of the world the clarity of what, what exactly happened, how, and why. As you mentioned, the wildfire resulted in a significant damage of homes and properties. Experts believe global climate change also set the stage for the deadly wildfire in Hawaii. How do you look at the climate link to Hawaii's wildfire tragedy? How might climate change further affect islands like Hawaii globally? Well, I think it's always a difficult, it's always a challenge to pin down one particular wildfire disaster to climate change. But、uh, the reality is that human-induced、uh, climate change definitely has set the sort of the contest there because you know the global is warming and、uh, with less precipitation, particular for this part of the world, so it's getting really dry.、Uh, so that definitely has been recognized as part of the reasons. But really, the causes actually for this devastating disaster、uh, are much, much broader than that. It's not just a human influence on climate change, but also on the environmental, on the ecosystem, environmental conditions there. If you look at the, the biodiversity,、uh, you know, the, this sort of flammable grasses, non-native species there.、Uh, then, if you look at the human, you know, sort of other factors there. So, I wouldn't really just be pointing the finger only to climate change. Climate change, as I said, is also human-induced there, so that's devastating reality. To a large extent, I think this is another sort of, you know, tra- tra- tragedy, you know, to warn everyone of us. Actually, human-induced changes to climate, climate and the environment definitely has been、uh, producing devastating disasters. We've already seen the flooding in China, the heat waves in the U.S., in the U.S., the the, the fires in Europe. And now this fire, wildfire disaster in Hawaii, we know how devastating when the converging of all the disaster factors coming together. So we need to learn from that lessons and take actions as you know, immediately as as quickly as possible. Now, the、mm-hmm. large in the larger context, there climate change definitely has been impacting、uh, you know island regions or low lying coastal areas. And with the warming continues to intensify, we know for sure. Actually, beyond beside the wildfires, you know, sea levels been rising. There will be more extreme storms like hurricanes, or typhoons, or whatever you name it.、Uh, so, islands, island countries, regions, low-lying、uh, coastal regions, actually, are definitely facing unprecedented challenges and the risks. We need to we need to figure out how to enhance those regions' resilience and capability. So that they wouldn't really suffer as much, you know, losses or so devastating losses as what we are witnessing now in Hawaii.
A report shows anger has been growing over the official response to the fires. Uh, local authorities have begun a probe into uh, the handling of the fire, with residents saying uh, there had been no warning. Could you please give us a brief introduction on the existing disaster warning system in Hawaii? Are there any discussions on the factors may have led to its failure to sound the alarms? Sure. I'm not an expert on this particular issue, but I've been reading all different reports, so I can give you roughly for my understanding. Uh, so Hawaii, if you look at in the last 20 plus years, Hawaii has had about 80 uh, wildfires disasters. So on average, about four wildfires every year. So Hawaii is not the sort of new uh, to wildfire disasters there. Uh, if you look at the alarming system there, which is a very important part of the emergency response, there were about 80, uh, you know, sort of stations, you know, sort of all around Hawaii, uh, ready for alarming and for any potential like a tsunami, wildfires, you know, earthquake, volcano, eruption, whatever, uh, with all kinds of disasters there. Now, in this particular case, last Tuesday, about a week ago, when the fire broke out there, and uh, as people were saying, no one said, uh, you know, no one heard about the siren system there, right? They didn't really hear the sounding alarm of the sirens there. Uh, but facts show that uh, officials, government agencies actually sent about 15, uh, about 12 to 15 uh, alarms messages to the mobile phone system there, right? And, uh, but somehow now we do need to go back and revisit about why not people responded quickly enough actually to, to leave or to respond, to take actions uh, to reduce the cost of the losses as we are experiencing now? Uh, we need to find answers there. Uh, but overall, the alarming systems definitely have been there. Now, there is a deeper issue there. Uh, if you look at a lot of reports and planning there, even you know, back in 2014, there were already reports, actually, uh, developed by different consultancies, different organizations, before local governments, basically say this particular region, the island of Maui, uh, Maui actually, is, is really facing the highest, probably, probably likely, high risk of wildfires there. And also providing their recommendations, saying they need to take more you know, aggressive actions and uh, you know, funding different infrastructures or systems there for emergency response. Now, the questions are asked now, investigation going on now, say, why not, right? With recommendations or planning suggestions there, why not in reality, government agencies have not been taking uh, the right level of actions as they take, you know, as investing in emergency response uh, at the level that should have been probably better fit uh, local governments or local uh, residents to respond to such a kind of disaster there. So I just said, let's wait and see until uh, you know, the evacuation efforts, recovery efforts, as well as the investigations are completed. So that will be able to learn through their lessons there so that other parts of the world will be able to figure out how to take, you know, learn the lesson and take more aggressive action. Indeed. Thanks, Changhua, for shedding light on the topic. Our heartfelt sympathy goes out to those affected by the recent disaster. That's Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center. You're all listening to Road Today. Stay tuned. You are listening to Road Today. Employees in Asia may not be as busy and productive as they seem to be. A new survey has found that workers in the region are spending the most time on performative work. It means they spend a lot of time in meetings rather than doing productive work. The survey conducted by U.S.-based software company Salesforce and a research firm Caltrix pulled data from over 18,000 desk workers and Executives in nine countries in the region. Employees from India, Japan, and Singapore reported spending more of their time on performative work than the global average. So, to understand the survey, our reporter Xiaowen spoke with Einar Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. 
The concept of performative work here refers to employees appearing busy instead of engaging in real productive work. And the survey identified India, Japan, Singapore, France, and the United Kingdom as the top five countries where people spend more of their time on performative work. So, how do you make up the list? What deeper issues does it unveil? Well, what would surprise me was、uh, Singapore, because everyone tends to think of Singapore as、uh, very, you know, hyper competitive and、uh, things. But it, clearly,、uh, they have an issue、uh, with how to communicate within their、uh, companies. Those are large numbers. And、uh, when you have employees who are, feel that way, you're not being productive, which means you're not going to be competitive. And in the end, that can affect、uh, the future of your company. So,、uh, the rest, uh, Japan uh, still has a little kind of hangover from the salary man era, where basically you would go into a company and and work there for the rest of your life. That is disappearing. But there's still a tremendous amount of pressure to look very, very busy.、Uh, a lot of men still go out after work and drink with their boss.、Um, there's got to be a lot of interaction with the team and also the boss. But obviously, while you're drinking, you're probably not doing too much work. The report has also found that employees' focus on appearing busy is likely influenced by the way leaders are measuring productivity. For example. It found that leaders are most likely to judge productivity based on visible activities such as the number of hours spent online or the number of emails sent, instead of focusing on achieving a real outcomes. So, do you think the survey may help company executives reevaluate what really drives productivity and how best to measure success? Unfortunately, not.、Um, and the reason I say that is,、um, you know, maybe some of them will look at this and、uh, to say, "Well, we need to do something." But the problem isn't with the workers. The problem is with their bosses. And generally, it's、uh, a company culture.、Uh, the bosses were probably raised in the same environment. Um, basically, where they would do exactly what they expected their employees to do, which is spend a lot of time, be visible,、uh, talk to them,、uh, in some cases praise them, and you know say yes, boss, you know everything you say is great. So it's a, as a company culture thing, it's much more difficult to change, and it really has to start at the top. And I, by that I mean the CEO and their team; they have to lead by example. They have to be very clear what they expect, establish、uh, KPIs, and then you know help people figure out how they can how they can meet those KPIs. So there's this careful balance.、Uh, management is really about communicating well, and any anybody who has you know that number or that percentage of people under them who are just basically fooling around or looking busy, they're poor managers. And you know the question is if you can if you can't train them you have to get rid of them and promote people who can, you know, work within this kind of new environment, where people are you know they they feel you know much more like they have to be engaged.、Uh, it's not for life.、Uh, the number of people who are changing jobs is astounding.、Uh, they were、uh, looking at Hong Kong and they said that one in every five people in the next two years plans to leave their current、uh, workplace. That's a lot of、uh, juggling around. It means a lot of added pressure on HR department. It's disruptive because when you have an employee go, the next one is not going to be up to speed.、Uh, you lose all of their experience, and then you have to add training on top of it. So it can be quite expensive.、Um, so you know there there have to be new and better strategies, and also. You know, there's all this talk,、uh, ChatGPT, and what technology is doing, and and a lot of that has to be demystified for people. In the area of digital-first work and、uh, artificial intelligence, the most productive employees tend to work in organizations with higher tech adoption and a generous amount of flexibility in when and where they work. This is also part of the result、uh, found by the survey. In addition to that,、um, the report has found that productive workers feel happy and engaged, understand how their roles fit into the company's overall mission, and benefit from transparent communication. So you you just said maybe it's hard for company CEOs and executives to change the current stance, to change the company's culture at the moment. So. Do you think it will help them? Like, how do you interpret the results of the survey? 
Well, okay. So I, I, I'm going to disagree with a lot of things that they came up with in the survey because they weren't uh, too good about uh, identifying. They said no one knows how to measure productivity. And actually, there's a, a kind of a war going on between employees and uh, their managers about what constitutes productivity. Um, there are different perspectives depending on which side you're on. So let, let's make it a little bit more simple. What does ChatGPT do? It's very good at looking at large masses of information, gathering them, and put them, you know, basically in a file. Sometimes you can have it write a little report. But what does that mean? Everybody can use the same chat GPT. So in business, it's about competitive advantage. So if you're just using the same information as your competitors, there's not, nothing unique there. So the future employees have to know the right questions. Because if you don't ask the right questions to ChatGPT, it cannot gather the information for you. It can't summarize it. Second, you have to be able to go and check the information. You know, we've seen horror stories, lawyers who had their briefs written by ChatGPT just to find out that the legal quotes that they had were just made up. And then lastly, there's going to be increased pressure on employees to truly understand the subject that they're involved in, that their their work, what their company wants to do, what their competitors are doing, why. Because once you get this information, you have to tailor it into some competitive advantage that will give your company a boost, uh, something that will make it better. And in order to do that, you have to really understand uh, the industry, your company, uh, the competitive uh, landscape. So it's not exactly what people think that it's just going to replace jobs. What it does is that you, you have to be smarter in order to uh, use these tools effectively. Actually, as the survey pointed out as well, employees who have adopted AI at work are 90% more likely to report high productivity, but only 27% of companies are investing in AI to drive these type of results. But the, here's the problem, Yavin. You don't know what you don't know. So, you know, most uh, CEOs don't really know anything about ChatGPT. It's very new. And there aren't a lot of people who can train you properly on how to use it. And uh, a lot of the people who could train you are actually working in the field trying to develop more algorithms and things like that. So, you know, with all things, there's opportunity there. If you can get a group of people together and, you know, really understand what ChatGPT can do, figure out a way of communicating and then training the CEOs, people at the top first, to show them what they should expect, how they can change their internal operations to maximize the benefits of what these tools, what they have to offer. Then uh, the secondary phase is to take that training down to the, uh, to the employees and teach them how to use it uh, appropriately so that they see the vision. Um, but no matter how well you, know, you, you investigate and adapt to ChatGPT, there is no substitute for leadership. That was Iyer Tangan, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. That's all the time for this edition of Road Today. A quick recap of today's headlines. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has wrapped up his trip to Singapore, Malaysia and Cambodia. China's State Council stresses optimizing foreign investment environment. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. For more, you can also follow us on Twitter. It's CDTN Radio. I'm Guyana. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.